Today's episode of Home Row is brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. The CSB offers an optimal blend of accuracy and readability, which helps readers make a deeper connection with God's Word, and it also inspires lifelong discipleship. The CSB is equally suited for serious study or for sharing with your neighbor hearing God's Word for the very first time. Learn more at csbible.com. I'm I'm writing. You know how to write. Without the without the without the writing, you have nothing. I'm writing. All right, welcome back to another episode of Home Row, and I'm your host Jeff Metters. And on today's show, I have Justin Taylor on. And if you don't know who Justin Taylor is, he is one of the blog fathers along with Tim Challies. And so if I was going to have to make a Mount Rushmore, a uh, blog Rushmore, um, I don't know who else I would put on it other than Justin and Tim. Uh, They've definitely got to be the first chisels on there. Um, And I don't know who would be next. Maybe Trevin Wax. I always joke with Trevin that I grew up reading Trevin's blog. Um, So it's, it's nice to kind of be considered in the same, like be a colleague of his through different projects. But Justin, how are you, man? I'm doing well. Thanks, Jeff. And so, Justin, you work at Crossway, but you've done so many things. And so, for the listeners out there who don't know who you are, um, but I'm guessing a lot of my listeners do know who you are, do know your name, the guy behind a bajillion John Piper books. Um, so, Justin, who are you? What do you do? Yeah, so I, I work at Crossway as publisher for books and uh, have been at Crossway now for 14 years. Um, amazing how time flies. I'm, I'm getting to be an old man now in my 40s. Uh, but prior to that, I was up in Minneapolis for six or seven years and uh, did an apprenticeship, kind of seminary level apprenticeship at Bethlehem Baptist Church and then stayed on and was uh, John Piper's assistant for several years uh, before moving down here. And originally from Iowa and actually uh, live in Iowa right now. Uh, we've moved back to our hometown and uh, continuing to work for Crossway. And so I'm, we're actually talking and I'm in, uh, in the Crossway studios right now. So I, I commute in and fly oh, in a, a few times a month. So yeah, my wife and I uh, have been married over 20 years and we have five kids. So two teenagers, two toddlers and one in the middle. So our life is just yeah. whiplash of teenage <laughs> world to toddler world, which are two very different worlds. Oh, man, but, yeah, uh, you got the whole spectrum there. Yeah, God's been very kind to us. All five kids through adoption and uh, yeah, the, the lines have fallen for us in, in pleasant places. Yeah, praise God. It's awesome. Now, I love uh, so much of your work. I mean, all of your work that you've done, obviously, it's just been so so beneficial to the church from your work at the ESV. Um, I remember when, the, when I first got my first ESV in high school and, and carrying it around and how that thing was so marked up. And, and then the blessings of all the, the Piper books, and then particularly uh, your work with uh, Kelly Capick. Mm. Um, on the uh, the John Owen trilogy. Well, you have two trilogies, but the first one, uh, Overcoming Sin and Temptation, um, and especially the Mortification of Sin in Believers. Oh, man. So first of all, thank you for the blessing of editing the, the elephant that is John Owen. <laughs> well, yeah. The, I, I tell people that the reason that I did that project was because I wanted to have a readable version for myself. And, and yet when you look at like a... You know, a highly abridged version or a paraphrased version, it's great, and I, I've benefited from those, but you don't know what the original exactly is saying. So 
we wanted to do something that was unabridged and that had a lot of helps. And one thing that really thrills me, and, and you may not know this, Jeff, is that Crossway is actually going to do uh, the complete works of Owen, everything wow. that he wrote, uh, tr- some fresh translations for the first time, all of the sermons, but all in that same style of keeping it unabridged, adding lots of helps and fresh typesetting. Oh, man. So it's a massive project with a lot of editors involved, but really, really thrilled that's happening. That's breaking news. You heard it here first. We got a, uh, you know, like with NBA Twitter, you got the Woj, the Woj bomb, Adrian <laughs> yeah. Wojnarowski. Now we got a Taylor bomb on home row. <laughs> that's right. The Metters bomb right here. Oh, man. that's our, So are you and Kelly doing that? They're going to adopt our uh, our volumes into it, but uh, we're not the primary editors. Uh, Lee Gaddis, an Anglican historian in the UK, and Sean Wright at Southern Seminary are the two general editors, and then each volume has its own editor. So it'll be a, a multi-volume project. Uh, takes several years to come out, but we're we're really excited. Man. A few things make me more excited than introducing the contemporary church to these theological giants of the past who who still speak by yeah. God's grace. Yeah, when I when I think about, you know, especially when you're doing ministry with with young men, older men, any, any men really and but mainly I think back in college ministry and the the chronic um, you know, conversation you have about dealing with sexual sin and pornography. Mm. Um, I mean, there was no resource I recommended more than yours of uh, the mortification of sin and believers. Mm. Um, and I could pinpoint back in my life as that being one of the just cosmic, you know, boom moments of, of mm. reading about the the power of the spirit to to overcome temptations mm. and sins. And so, man, that's really exciting um, to hear. Praise God. Praise God. Thanks for the encouragement. Well, and also, uh, p- people may not know this unless they're um, really in tune with what's going on in the academic world, but uh, you also are a doctor. I should have called you Dr. Taylor at the beginning of the show, mm. so my apologies. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty upset about that. <laughs> <laughs> and so you got your PhD at Southern Seminary. Uh, I did. On John Piper. And so, so tell us about, about that briefly. Yeah, that uh, I, I had for many years thought about doing a PhD and uh, had edited a festschrift in honor of, of Dr. Piper and had um, just been, you know, I, I've, I knew him in several different categories as uh, my pastor, as my boss, as a friend. And the more I started to think about uh, who he was and the influence that he's had, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the influences in his own life. Uh, who shaped him theologically, spiritually, and so came up with four categories, really, of uh, his fundamentalist parents, uh, Dan Fuller at Fuller Seminary, and then uh, two guys he never got to meet, C.S. Lewis, who we'll be talking about a little bit here, and Jonathan Edwards. So, uh, traced the way in which all four of those folks influenced John Piper. And, and really, the the thesis was, if you take any one of those four out of the equation, I think you'd have a different John Piper, a different pastor, a different theologian, a different person than you have today. But the four of them conspired together, as it were, to produce John Piper. Yeah. So that was the thesis. Really cool. Really interesting. And I'm sure you can go and find that on the SBTS kind yep. of thesis, doctoral portal, or something like that. Um, I think I even skimmed it recently um, because I think you, you did the biblical spirituality track at Southern, right? Mm-hmm, correct. Yep. Yeah, that Under concentration. Yep. Yeah. So that's the one I'm leaning towards as well. I've mm, um, been talking with Dr. Whitney. Um, and so 
I think I just stumbled across it when I was just Googling some stuff. Yeah, that's great bedtime reading. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, I always ask listeners what they do for fun. And so now that you're in Iowa, and I just had the Risen Motherhood uh, team on the podcast too, and they're based out of Iowa, and they talked about corn mazes. So, <laughs> so are the Taylor family hitting up corn mazes out in Iowa? Yeah, that's... Uh... When we're bored, we just go detassel for a while, and you probably don't even know what detasseling is. No idea. Yeah, it's it's some like a rite of passage for middle school kids to go out and uh, detassel the corn and get up at four in the morning. And so I did that back in the day, but no, I actually don't spend a lot of time in the corn. But yeah, I wish I had like a cool hobby. Like I always think people who say that woodworking is their hobby, like that just sounds really cool. It does sound cool. Um, <laughs> But beyond, I don't have a, a whole lot of uh, really interesting hobbies other than hanging out with my family and and reading and uh, trying to keep my head above water. Yeah. Do, do y'all have a Nintendo Switch? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. It's awesome. Um, do you play it? Oh, absolutely. With my kids. With my kids. Oh, yeah. And so we play Mario Kart and we have these very competitive Mario Kart tournaments. And it's like our family night. We know we'll watch America's Funny yeah. Some videos, and then which is still on, which is so great. Right. It's one of the few shows you can watch. It's going to be clean. It's going to be right. cheesy because you know Alfonso Carlton's hosting the show now, and uh, it's so cheesy. But we watch that. We crack up together, and then we go play some Mario Kart. Um, and I just dominate my family. I think I'm undefeated. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Put that on your resume. That's right. I'm going to go update my CV. <laughs> Undefeated Mario Kart champion. That's great. Uh, what about NBA? Do you keep up? I know you're a Chicago guy. Do you keep up with the NBA? <laughs> Not that the Bulls are any good, but. I know. We're rebuilding. We've got to trust the process, right? That's right. No, I'm more of a, a college football fan. Uh, but yeah, I keep up with uh, the Bulls here and there. And it's sort of one of those things that. You know, if if the Bears or the Bulls or the Cubs are doing well, then it's more fun to follow. But unless you're a diehard, it's yeah. it's not that fun to follow a perennial losing team. Right. But uh, the Nebraska Cornhuskers, uh, you, you got to love that nickname for a, yeah. a college football team. Is is my go-to like uh, read multiple blogs a day sort of fandom. So that's that's my yeah. guilty passion, I guess. There you go. Yeah, that's how I am with the Rockets. I mean, I'm a diehard. Rockets fan, and so I'm always cruising the Rockets. I mean, I even go to like Rockets fans message boards. Yeah, and see yeah, what's going on. It's a sickness, on. but uh, but it's fun, right? It is. And now I got my wife addicted to it, and sometimes <laughs> she'll text me, "Did you hear what happened?" And you know, she'll send me stuff. So, wow, that's next level. Yeah, yeah, she might be a bigger fan than I am. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Well, you're here uh, to talk about C.S. Lewis, and so uh, I'm going to put a link to Justin's article in the show notes, but back in 2016, uh, Justin wrote a piece called 15 Pieces of Writing Advice from C.S. Lewis, um, and so through his letters and sources, uh, you've kind of pulled together various bits of advice on writing that, that Lewis put out there, and so we talked, and I said, hey, would you want to come on and talk about these, what you've observed, and you just riff on them. And Justin said, let's do it. So let's dive into number one. Okay, you say, number one piece of writing advice from C.S. Lewis, avoid distractions, turn off the radio. Yeah, I think, you know, with that one in particular, I think it's got to be a rule 
that you can't be distracted and do good writing, and yet there's flexibility in terms of what distracts you. So there's some people who can go to a writing or to a coffee shop, and they can write, and there's other people that just can't have that kind of ambient noise in the background. So I kind of think of that one as good rule and then flexibility in how you implement it, but there's no good way to be a good thinker or a good writer if you're perennially being distracted. So I would say find what distracts you and then avoid that if you actually want to make progress on whatever you're writing, whatever you're working on. What, what are ways that you, that you do that? What, do I wait, what are ways that I avoid tra- yeah, distractions? distractions? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, with having a large family and working from home, I've got to get away to a place where, where I'm not being interrupted and having people come in or, um, you know, so that's one kind of easier way. The other thing is that we're just so wired for our own distractions, right? It's not just the toddler who's distracting me, but right. I'm getting distracted by uh, this shiny phone that I have in my pocket or this notification that I see pop up. So I think there's like an external um, barrier that you have to set and then some internal things as well. And, um, you know, if I go on too long about this, I'm going to feel guilty for being hypocritical because I don't think that like, <laughs> like this is something I'm great at. And, right. uh, you know, tune in now to listen to Justin Taylor talk about how to avoid <laughs> distractions. Like it feels like a, a constant struggle. Um, but I know that if I want to think well, there it's, it's not like there, maybe there's some projects out there that you can do it and just start and stop. And it's fine. I mean, Maybe for washing the dishes, if you keep getting interrupted, you just get right back into it. Writing is more mental work, and and for at least people like me, there's an on-ramp to it, and you need to get into a rhythm. And so I think whatever we can do to try to minimize distractions at a reasonable level, uh, the more we do that, probably the better our writing is going to become. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's really good. I always try to do uh, use this one app on my on my computer. Uh, it's called Self Control, which is so ironic because the app blocks all the sites that you can't keep yourself from going to mm. for you. So it's like yeah. I don't have self control, so I need to have this app on my right. computer named Self Control. Yeah, uh, I have one called Freedom, which is a great uh, positive way of spinning it. That yeah. you know you're turning off YouTube and. Even if you want to go on there, no, I'm sorry. You have freedom right now. You're you're free from having to yeah. look up the latest rockets news. Ah, that's crushing. <laughs> and so what what I do now with music, I've I've trying to change it up a little bit because uh, when I have a Spotify playlist, you could just have it rolling. It, it won't stop. I mean, I have one mm-hmm. playlist that's like ten hours of music. Um, and so now sometimes when I'm writing, I'll put on my vinyl records which depending on the size, it could be 15, 20 minutes on one side of the record. And so I just tell myself, no breaks, mm-hmm. nothing, 20 minutes, just keep writing, mm-hmm. plow forward, then get up, flip the record, uh, you know, go to the bathroom, get coffee, whatever, then sit back down and keep writing till that, till that album's over. Yep. All right. Yep. No, go ahead. No, I think that's a, there's a, a wisdom there and uh, also having just little breaks and, you know, we can think, boy, if I really wanted to be disciplined today, just I'm going to put that app on, turn everything off for 12 hours straight and, um, you know, just kind of completely go cold turkey and distractions. And sometimes if we just do it incrementally, like I'm going to plow ahead for a half hour here and then I'll get up and, you know, 
do something else and have a little bit of a break. Sometimes we're all wired differently. So that's why I say like, it's a good rule, flexible in its application. That's right. All right. Number two, read all the good books you can, man, that's a huge one. Uh, Mm, He says, Lewis says, read all the good books you can and avoid nearly all magazines. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm sure that if Lewis were alive today, he would say avoid nearly all blogs. (laughs) Right. Um, I think that the positive principle there is that I can't think of anybody who is a great writer, or even a really good writer, who's not a good reader. Because those skills are not – writing is not a natural skill. I mean, nobody comes out knowing how to write. Um, it has to be developed over time, and the way that you learn how to write is to – see for yourself what good writing is like, to be influenced by it, to take it in, to absorb it, to to watch a master work, to be apprenticed by it. And so you can't just sit down with the world's greatest writing expert and have him or her tell you how to do it. You need to see it modeled and you need to learn things. Uh, Lewis will say later, you know, if if your only interest is writing itself, you're not going to be a very interesting person. You've got to be interested in things outside of writing. And so, yeah, I think you have to have to read, and and it's not just reading. You know, notice he doesn't say something like read uh, a thousand books. It's reading good books and being discerning and um, refining your taste buds, as it were. Um, yeah. You know, if you just get addicted to fast food, uh, your palate's going to be different than if you are training your taste buds according to, to fine foods and to taste the textures and the different smells and the different arrangements. So mm. um, I think it's hard advice to argue against. Yeah. What, what's a good book you've read recently that you would tell somebody, oh man, you should you should read this one? Uh, I feel like I'm dipping into so many different books, but uh, right now I'm dipping into Dan Trier's Introducing Evangelical Theology. Um, so that's not a book kind of on the, the level of literature or a novel, but it's um, it's a theology book. But you can tell from the way that he's crafted his sentences that he he's a master teacher, a pedagogue. And so he's thought really carefully about not just – am I getting the doctrine right, but am I expressing this in a way that's creative? Mm. Um, am I thinking about how this communicates? Um, so I've been appreciating that book, dipping in in and out. Yeah, cool. I think I just saw you post about that this morning. Yeah, I did. Blog. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. I don't, I've, I've never heard of him or, and don't know much about him. Yeah, he studied under Kevin Van Hooser, and the oh, two of them have partnered for together me. on yeah on book projects. So he's a uh, he's KJV only. You got to be aware of that. <laughs> got to throw a dad joke in there. Here. Always, uh, always theological perfect. podcast. That's right. Okay, next one. I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. Um, okay, third. Always write and read with your ear and not your eye. Lewis says, always write and read with the ear, not the eye. Um, you should hear every sentence you write as if it were being read aloud or spoken. It does, if it does not sound nice, try again. Yeah, that's uh, – I think it's such a key principle, and there's got to be some reason behind it that I probably couldn't explain. But there are things that are – our eyes are wired to to skip over things, and that's one of the ways that we become faster readers is uh, prepositional phrases. We 
we don't see each individual word. We see it as a chunk, and that enables us to read more quickly, more smoothly. But when you're a writer um, and you don't read back, then you can you can miss all sorts of things, and you can miss the cadence of how things sound. And when you read it out loud or have somebody else read it to you, you can see the ways in which things are imbalanced or ways in which things are uh, more convoluted than they should be. Um, so it's just it's a really important principle for editing uh, and for your own writing that in your head it might sound one way, but until you actually verbalize it, you'll get greater clarity in hearing it than just reading it alone. Yeah, yeah, I like that a, a lot. I think it's so different um, just writing. Um, and it probably helps me because I'm because I'm a pastor and so I'm preaching you know, mm-hmm. 40-ish Sundays a year. And so I've gotten frequent comments from people in our church, either when they're reading a blog post I wrote about St. Augustine and Kanye, or when they're reading... Great you know, post, by the way. Oh, thanks, man. Um, and then when they're reading one of my books, they, just, they can say, man, I can hear you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like I'm talking to you or talking with you as I'm reading this. Um, and I think that just comes from preaching um, and, and thinking about manuscripts and all that. So, right. so yep. such, such helpful advice from Lewis. All right, number four. Write only about what interests you. Lewis says, write about what really interests you, whether it is real things or imaginary things and nothing else. All right. What do you, what do you got to say about that? Yeah, I think that is a really helpful principle. You know, I'm sure that there are going to be some exceptions to the rule. You know, maybe you're uh, tasked with writing something that may not interest you quite as much. But I think as a general rule, if you're not interested in the subject um, in and of itself, you're going to lack the curiosity that will make your piece really good. And you're also going to lack the passion that really makes a piece feel authentic and feel personal as well. So uh, I think that's good advice. Find what interests you. And it doesn't necessarily have to be what interests everybody else. It may be a very niche topic. Um, When we talk to authors, uh, potential authors at Crossway um, in, in finding the right book for them to write, three of the questions that we ask them are, is there a need out there? Uh, are you competent to write it? And then do you have the passion to write it? Um, you, know, you can be competent in an area and there can be a need, but if, if your heart's not in it, it's going to be trudgery yeah. and and people aren't probably going to want to read it. Man, that's so good. Yeah, you got st- some stuff you have to write about. Like if you're in seminary, you can't uh, turn in yeah. a piece of paper. Well, I'm not interested in this topic, professor. I'm right. sorry. All right. If your if your job is to churn out blog content and copy, uh, you got to do it. You got to hit those word counts, and you got to keep them going. Yep. Um, okay. Five. Work hard at being clear. Man, I, I love this one. Lewis says, mm. "Take great pains to be clear. Remember that that though you start by knowing what you mean, the reader doesn't, and a single ill chosen word may lead him to a total misunderstanding." In a story, it is terribly easy just to forget that you, that you have not told the reader something that he needs to know. The whole picture is so clear in your own mind that you forget that it isn't the same in his. Yeah, and I think if if anybody has any trouble understanding this, so the thing about Lewis is he's so great that, I mean, it is clear what he means here when he talks about working hard yeah. at being clear. But, I mean, if you've ever been in a conversation with a friend and they're trying to tell you some story, but they're... They're jumbling stuff up. They're putting stuff out of order. They're skipping steps. And you think, okay, you know what happened in your own mind, but you need to tell me because I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. And 
this I think of perhaps all of the pieces. He's got another uh, one later in the list that kind of comes back to this a little bit. But I would just encourage listeners, above all else, try to be clear. Before you try to be clever, before you try to turn that phrase in such a way that people are wowed or awed by it, first of all, be clear. Because if you're not clear, nothing else matters. And and that's where if you read – you know, Lewis says don't read magazines. But if you read a magazine, you're never sitting there going, I wonder what right, that right. sentence means. Like you might disagree with it, uh, but then they've done s- – They've constructed it in such a way that you can actually get to disagreement rather than they're just perplexed about what is he even talking about there? So clarity, clarity, clarity. Uh, I mean, it's just – it's the first steps of, of writing, like the first steps of walking. You can you can add somersaults and uh, cartwheels and all that right. later. But if you can't walk, you know, you're not going to be doing those other things. Yeah. Yeah, don't uh, don't just double click a word and pick the synonym or the right. the source. Yeah. yeah, I love his advice that he has about pick the uh, the shorter word or the, mm-hmm. yeah. the easier word. The yeah, like some of that's so so helpful. And then some of this is is the uh, temptation to have that little flair, to have a little yeah. flourish, right? But I think I think you can tell when it's forced and when it's natural. Yep. Um, I like to try to lean into word pictures more mm. than. Uh, more than a thesaurus. Right. But hey, everyone's different. All right. Number six. Well, I think the work, let's, before we move on to five, from five, I think the work hard part is, shouldn't, we, like, man, mm-hmm. can't overlook that. It is, it is work uh, to go back and edit. Um, it probably goes back to the same thing to the ear, too, is to, to hear it out loud um, and to assume, you know, I remember early on when I started writing blog posts and all those other places and getting comments like either from my wife or from a friend, like, I don't really understand what this paragraph is, um, is to have the humility to say, oh, yeah, you're probably right. And not, well, you just, you're just not smart enough to understand what I'm <laughs> like. You, you just don't get the theology here that's behind it. Uh, no yeah, the way, there was a, a story at Crossway. This predates uh, my tenure here, but um, relatively famous theologian uh, and apologist and one of our editors, who's a very smart editor, uh, just finding a, one paragraph in particular very unclear and, and wrote in the margin, unclear. And, you know, you send the page proofs off to the author for him to review and and to respond to different questions. And he got to that paragraph that said unclear and just wrote back in big letters, yes, it is clear. Like, well, oh, boy. <laughs> if you've got like a professional editor who can't figure out what you're saying, you, you yeah. <laughs> I need to have the humility to say, yeah, I need some work. But I think you're right, Jeff. It is hard work. And we need to embrace the hard work of it and not just assume that it's going to be easy and um, it's like anything worth doing. It's uh, it, it maybe gets a little easier with time, but it is hard work and we've got to put the time into it. Yeah, yeah and we need those editors because I know when I was going over stuff from, uh, from Humble Calvinism, I mean, I just – I'd read the stuff so many times mm-hmm. and I just couldn't see what wasn't there. Yep. that needed to be there because I thought it was there yep. and that was not clear at all. But I think those who have ears to hear will know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I knew what was in my mind and I knew what was, I wanted to be there, but I just looked at it so much that I needed the editors to tell me, Hey, we need to clarify this or we need, yep. you know, all that kind of stuff. So there yep. we go. All right. Six, 
Don't throw away writing projects that you put aside. When you give up a bit of work, don't, unless it's hopefully bad, throw it away. Hopelessly bad, but throw it away. Put it in a drawer. It may come useful later. Much of my best work, Lewis says, or what I think my best, is the rewriting of things begun and abandoned years earlier. Yeah, what an interesting testimony from Lewis because, you know, we look at Lewis some 50 years, 60 years, 70 years later and think everything he wrote was great. And he was of such a caliber that you can assume that everything was effortless for him. And to think about him actually writing an essay, writing a short story that he just gave up on and said, this stinks. And, And not throwing it away, but putting it aside for later. Uh, maybe he needed to experience life more. Maybe he needed to uh, get more feedback. Maybe he needed to achieve some distance from it. Uh, there's all sorts of reasons that you can come back to a pace. You were just talking about your own work, and you're so close to it, and you it starts to get a little disorienting. Like, what's real here? What's good? What's terrible? Um, getting away from something sometimes you can come back to it and say, actually, that that was better than I thought it was, or now I see how that can be fixed. Where beforehand I was just lost in the in the middle of everything. Um, so I think it's good advice. Yeah, like there's there's ideas I have um, a book idea in particular that talking with my agent um, stemmed off an article that I wrote a couple of years ago that I still get emails about, um, and I just said, you know, I'm too young to write this book right now. Mm-hmm. Like, like I know. Um, and Jared Wilson and I were talking about this book recently. He's like, that's your next one. I said, I know, man, but I think I'm too young. I think mm-hmm. I, I think I got to be at least 40 or like for that to come out and for people to go, yeah, I would listen to yeah. him talking about this. Um, not when I was 30. Well, I sometimes think about Tim Keller. You know, uh, I think most people know this, that he, I think before the age of 60, maybe he'd written one book and, you know, now is like a book a year. Um, but if I was an acquiring editor at a publishing house and I could go back in time and meet 30-year-old Tim Keller right. who had just done like an eight-week series on pain and suffering, I'd be like, I want to sign you up because this is really good and this is really insightful. But uh, not having a time machine and standing back, I would rather read 60-year-old Tim Keller on pain yeah. and suffering than 30-year-old Tim Keller. I mean, it's it's probably 100 times better as a book, even if the original would have been good. So, yeah, all of this ultimately, I think, is in the Lord's providence. And some of the things, um, you know, it's just maybe it's the right book and it's not the right time. Um, so you never know. Yeah, yeah, so true. All right, number seven. Write, don't type. I, I remember learning about this from uh, Dan DeWitt's C.S. Lewis class that I, that I took at Southern. Uh, he, Lewis hated typewriters. He says, don't use a typewriter. The noise will destroy your sense of rhythm, which still needs years of training. Mm. Yeah, I guess we'd say today, don't use a typewriter, use a, a laptop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then problem solved. But yeah, I mean, I think that's one of those ones that you know, uh, there's that principle involved. He says that uh, to develop a sense of rhythm needs years of training. So I think that's the the overarching principle. And uh, it's something that we just don't think about that on an old-fashioned typewriter, every single time you're hitting a key, it's making a clunk. And, um, 
you know, for him, harder to get into that rhythm. And so for him to sit down uh, with a fountain pen and the flow of it and the rhythm, it was just a different ambiance and, and circumstances for him that was more conducive to the sort of writing that he needed to do. Um, so, again, I think a good principle and yet flexible in its yeah. um, application. I can't imagine writing anything substantial by hand or or on a typewriter, something where I couldn't correct it. I mean, the amount of correction that goes on, right. the amount of times I hit delete while I'm writing and highlighting and deleting, the paper would be, it just wouldn't be legible. Well, yeah. And I mean, just the, the ease of which you can say, I'm going to take insert a new paragraph between these two paragraphs and I'm going to move this to the end. And um, yeah, it, for us who are a little bit younger, I'm older than you are, but it wasn't that long ago that you know, these books like Unknowing uh, God by J.I. Packer. Yeah. I mean, he's sitting in a study writing this out in longhand, and then he's probably handing it to a faculty secretary who sits down and has to decipher it and type the entire thing out and, uh, you know, send it to a publisher and then retype the whole thing when corrections Goodness, come back. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a crazy process, but they may have been better writers than we yeah, are. Yeah, I think so. Because think of so. that that intentionality that you actually have to take to to write it out and to think it through. Yeah. Yeah. Probably, probably some slowness, some more pausing, reflecting. Yeah. And yeah. then us just clacking away over here. Right. Yeah. And I think I, I think it's true that Lewis, he dictated a lot of his stuff to his brother, mm. to Warney and Warney would type them up and then send them out. And another odd fact about Lewis for the other Lewis nerds out there, he hated zippers. Mm. I haven't heard that one. I don't know why he just, <laughs> I mean, I like a good button fly too. Um, but Hey, whatever. Okay. He was more of a sweatpants man, wasn't he? Oh, that would be a great (laughs) image that, uh, just, you know, I almost got to spend a week at the kilns this summer, Mm. uh, during my sabbatical. But so I got accepted into the Institute like program to go and stay. Um, but the, they didn't have any availability while I was on sabbatical. I could only go in Mm. November. I was like, no, I said, well, can you come later? Like, no, it can only be this week. Can you please squeeze me in? I said, no, we don't have any room. Like, oh, oh, man, that stinks. Next time, next sabbatical, seven years from now, we'll see. Yeah. Okay, number eight, know the meaning of all the words you use. Be sure you know the meaning or meanings of every word you use. And, you know, sometimes when we're talking, we might throw a word in there where you think, I don't know if that entirely works, but words, when they come out verbally, uh, you know, they kind of vanish in the air. A little different from you for you as a pastor where your sermons are getting recorded. But just as we're talking, you can kind of afford to perhaps slightly misuse a word. But when you're writing, that's a more permanent yeah. form. And yeah, I'm sort of embarrassed sometimes how I'm writing and I think, I think this is the right word, but I just want to Google that and make sure that <laughs> I actually know. And I it's not just because I grew up in Iowa and just assumed for the past 40 years that I know what this word means. And turns out that I'm misusing the word. Um, So yeah, it, nothing uh, will reveal your ignorance more than trying to use a word that you don't actually know and how incredibly uh, spoiled are we that any word that you ask me that I don't know, I, I can pull up my phone and find it and, three seconds it's not like i've got to go drive to the library and you know look up a dictionary or something like that so yeah i think there's really no excuse i have two dictionary apps on my phone yeah i don't even know why i need two but i have two we're very spoiled yeah 
And it makes me think of the, uh, the usage of uh, when people say home in mm-hmm. or hone in. Oh, yeah. uh, like the difference there is huge. So oftentimes people use hone in. I, I want to hone in on this topic. Right. When it should be home in with an M. Yep. Um, like a for, homing bird. That's right. Yeah. For homing pigeons. And then to hone in on something. I don't even remember what in the world that is. I, I'd, have to yeah. go, I'd have to go look it up. Um, I think it has to do with, like, with whittling to hone mm-hmm. something. To yep. cut or something. Yep. yep. I don't know. I bet, I bet that it comes up often in editing processes. Yeah, once you pick up that distinction, you'll see that mistake all the time. And here's a good uh, – you, you mentioned an app. Let me just make a plug for a resource I have nothing to do with, so it's not like I get any uh, affiliate fees or something like that. But Garner's Modern Usage oh, yeah. uh, is a big book, um, but you can also get it as an app. And it does those sort of of things where you think, what is the right word to use here? Um it's a really, really smart, careful guide. And, you know, you're thinking about the word peruse. Like, does that mean read real carefully or does that mean skim? Go to that book and you kind of mm-hmm. look it up and you get some kind of uh, orientation. And um, so it's, it's a good resource for um, a writer to know about because, you know, dictionary, easy, you can just Google it. Thesaurus, limited value, uh, but Garner's modern usage. It's a hefty, really book. helpful resource to have in hand. Yep, but you can get it as an app. Yeah, see, I had already bought the book and I didn't see that there was an app years ago. I was like, nah, because it's not yeah. a cheap app. You're right. Yeah, as, as much as the book. I don't actually have the app either, but I've got the book. Yeah, cool. All right, next one. Oh, there's another one I thought of. Yeah, when I think about editing and um, the usage of words, that sometimes you know we may know the usage of the word, but to be the most helpful writer, your audience may not know the usage of that word, mm-hmm. um, and it'd just be unnecessary. So like, there was a piece I was writing. Um, I can't remember if it was in a book or an article. It was a book, and I was using the word umami uh, to talk about you know the sweetness, you know how the kind of our five senses and you have mm-hmm. and different flavors, salt, acid, um, you know, and a zest, all, all that kind of stuff. And I talked about the gospel as having a umami, umami flavor to it. Mm. And the editor wrote back, was like, I have no idea what that word is. And I thought, please learn it, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I love the, uh, the sense that I'm trying to bring about how mm-hmm. the flavors and the culinary delights that the gospel has and, and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but he didn't know. And I was like, well, if my editor doesn't know, well then yeah. I, I don't want to force it in there. Right. Um, so just different things like that. And I think probably cause my editor was also British. So there was other challenges mm. with, with that mm-hmm. as well, but Hey, you gotta, gotta cut stuff. Yep. All right. Nine avoid ambiguity. So the way for a person to develop a style is to know exactly what he wants to say and to be sure he is saying exactly that. The reader, we must remember, does not start by knowing what we mean. If our words are ambiguous, our meaning will escape him. I just talked about this. Uh, I sometimes think that writing is like driving sheep down a road. If there's any gate open to the left or to the right, the reader will most certainly go into it. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, it's a brilliant Lewisian sentence, and I think actually if if listeners remember anything from our conversation, that might be the metaphor just to keep in your mind, because it's you can 
I mean, Lewis is modeling here what he's talking about. He's so clear. It's evocative. Uh, yeah, let me just read it again. I sometimes think that writing is like driving sheep down a road. If there is any gate open to the left or the right, the reader will most certainly go into it. So they're prone to kind of wander off the path. And you you have a destination in mind. You're You're leading them. They don't know what you're going to say. You know where you're going, and you need to take them there. And if you start introducing distractions, if you uh, introduce ambiguity where they think, am I supposed to be going to the left here, or am I supposed to be going to the right? It's just going to be a train wreck. And so, yeah, that that those marching orders of know exactly where you want what you want to say and then make sure you say exactly that both of those pieces are really crucial yeah. you have to know where you're going and then you have to actually do it and say it and just so clear so helpful i think yeah yeah and close off those gates i like this stuff like i know you might be thinking uh this mm-hmm. uh, especially i do that in preaching so you might be thinking i'm, I'm mentioning this i'm actually not talking about yeah. that and I think the, I think our Lord does that in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. You know, that you've heard it said, um, but I'm I'm telling you that gate's actually closed. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, all right. Ten. Use language to make your meaning clear and make sure it can't mean anything else. These are all very interrelated. Right. Always try to use the language so as always try to use the language so as to make it quite clear what you mean and make sure your sentence couldn't mean anything else. Yeah. And I think that takes some creativity to think about how could this be misunderstood or misapplied. And then it also probably takes uh, a community uh, to have somebody in your life to say, would you read this and just let me know what you think? And they might say, well, it sounds like you're saying this. And that just gives you an opportunity. Like somebody's going to, I've, I've constructed this in such a way that a good reader is not entirely clear of where I'm trying to lead them. And um, so that's, Helpful. I think if we try to just do all of our writing completely isolated, that's not the best practice. And yeah. others can help us figure out where we're unclear what we thought we were clear. Mm-hmm. That's good. All right, 11. Choose the plain and direct word over the long and vague one. Lewis says, always prefer the plain, direct word to the long one, uh, to the long, vague one. Don't implement promises. Keep them. And again, Lewis, you know, he's giving us advice here, but his own writing really models this. And I think that perhaps for guys and women who go to seminary, uh, just graduate from college, they might think, I, I need to show the writer that I'm smart and I've thought this through. And uh, you can develop a sort of academic way of thinking and talking that – that is not actually smarter, but it sounds smarter because it sounds more convoluted. Mm-hmm. When you get somebody like Lewis, and very few people are reading Lewis thinking, well, I'm smarter than this guy. You can see his intelligence shining through. And yet he's not using million-dollar words. He's using simple words and clear words. And So instead of saying, you know, Jim met his demise last evening, you say, Jim died last night. I mean, yeah. Boom. Clear. It's not – you're not piling up words just for an effect. Um, and that doesn't mean you can't use a variety of words and you know sometimes vary things up. But I think if given the choice, if there's a clear way to say it, um, choose the clearer way, simpler way. Yeah. I think this is – man, this is ringing really close to home because I turned in a uh, 
a seminary assignment for a master, one more master's level class that I, I needed to take before beginning PhD stuff. And I got notes back from the grader. And the comments were for this essay, uh, how should I put it? Very, they were very much like, uh, you write very clear. Um, it's easy to read. But your uh, varied uh, staccato sentences, while great for spoken rhetoric and normal reading, are not fit for academic writing. Mm. And I got points off. <laughs> I'm like, dude, you tell me I'm getting points off because like I'm I'm writing in a helpful way. Like, come on, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll play the game. So my next essay, I wrote long sentences, convoluted, bigger <laughs> words. Got a hundred. Nice. I'm like, okay. Like, whatever, mm-hmm. man. Whatever we got to do. You're a man under authority. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> that's what my wife says. She's like, just, you just have to do it. I mean, there's no way around it. You just got to do it. So, yeah. All right. Here we go. Okay. The 12th. I, I love this one. This is one I just always try to lean into. Choose the concrete noun over the abstract one. Never use abstract nouns when concrete ones will do. If you mean more people died, don't say mortality rose. Yeah. Yep. That... Again, Lewis is a master here of of being concrete with the use of language because abstract words can be appropriate. Abstract nouns, you know, they have a place in our language, but the accumulation of them over time creates a, a fog effect in the mind of the reader. It's not a clear effect. Concrete things are things that you can uh, you can touch, you can smell, you can feel, you can get your arms around, and it just connotes reality. Uh, again, it's not to say you can never in your life, you know, treat an abstract noun like it's a, a profane word or something like that. But the piling up of them, it, it mm. just creates an effect for your reader, and con- good concrete writing enables your reader to envision what you're saying it it leads them it's more evocative um or just reading a piece the other day by scott swain on um meditating on psalm 84 11 that the lord god is a son and you know there's a that's a good concrete image the lord is a son versus you know the lord is the supremely enjoyable fount of all you know you just start to pile up and you just yeah. start to lose things cuz the the fog is coming in uh just simple concrete to the point I'll let your readers get their mind around it yeah yeah i just sent in uh an endorsement for a, a book uh coming out from crossway next year um from jen Oshman. Mm. um enough about enough about me and yeah. And then the part of the endorsement that I loved, then she wrote back, she's like, oh, I, love, I love this part, was uh, I just had a little bit in there about, you know, how sometimes women, my sisters, you can, ch- well, like, we can all chase different promises and things in life that we think are going to make us happy. That getting the chiseled arms at the gym, uh, having a smokestack of essential oils pumping in mm-hmm. our house, mm-hmm. or promising that we'll never buy frozen chicken nuggets again. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, you can just picture all of those. It's just- yeah clear it's to the point it connects with reality uh versus you could rewrite that whole thing to just put that all in in abstract ways and yeah true yeah it just just doesn't have the same effect working out uh, or you would just put fitness health products and unhealthy food right but you get that specificity with it um to where when i was writing it i could picture 
you know, women that I know in our church or whatever in their homes and just those little essential oils diffusers churning out, mm-hmm. uh, the Tyson bag of frozen chicken nuggets, panko yep. bread that we get at HEB, our little grocery store. And so, mm-hmm. so I love to try to lean into concrete, <laughs> concrete stuff. Okay. 13, make the reader feel what you are describing rather than telling the reader what it is with an adjective. So he says, don't use adjectives, which merely tell us how you want us to feel about the things you are describing. I mean, instead of telling us the thing is terrible, describe it so that we'll be terrified. Don't say it was delightful. Make us say delightful when we've read the description. You see, all those words, horrifying, wonderful, hideous, exquisite, are only like saying to your readers, please, will you do my job for me? Yeah, that's another one. I mean, I think, again, if you... If you remember only two things from this podcast, the the leading the sheep where you want them to go because they're going to want to wander off an opening if they can. And this one of uh, tell us how to feel. Don't tell us what you're feeling. Uh, it's just it's golden advice. And, you know, I know the listeners don't necessarily have this piece right in front of them as they're listening. Um, but this was a letter that Lewis wrote to a young girl in America, like elementary school age, who had written to Lewis in 1956, asking him for writing advice. So here he is writing to a girl who's eight, nine, ten years old. I'm not sure, uh, telling her how to write, and it's it's great. You want the the reader to have an effect, and if you just kind of pedantically tell them. Um, what exactly they are to be feeling you you've lost the art of of writing um so there's an example where you can be clear but you're not achieving the rhetorical effect that you want and you're you actually end up frustrating your reader yeah 14 use words appropriate for the subject don't use words too big for the subject don't say infinitely when you mean very Otherwise, you'll have no word left when you want to talk about something really infinite. <laughs> this reminds me of somebody I know in my life who loves the word very, and uh, if they really, really want to emphasize it, they say it was very, very, very <laughs> serious. And like, I don't, I mean, if it's, do you just keep uh, multiplying the yeah, very? It's, it's like biblical Hebrew, the, just holy, 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 you know, very, exactly, very, very. Exactly. So, yeah, I think. What Lewis is showing here is just knowing the subject, but then knowing your audience and knowing what's appropriate. And, you know, is he saying that you can't ever use the word infinitely? No, he's saying you want to use that word at the appropriate level and don't kind of waste your shot on something where um, you're – you're training your readers to think he's he's hyperbolic. He, yeah. Um, uh, I have a, a friend who who tweets in such a way that, that everything is hyperbole, and so I've stopped like actually thinking he's all that exercised about something because everything's sort of dialed up to eleven. <laughs> um, so I think it's good advice from yeah. Lewis. Use words appropriate to the subject and kind of pick your battles, pick your words and and don't waste them. Yeah. I'm sure you've heard this from Don Whitney. Um, he talks about the word awesome. Mm. Have you heard him go on about this? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Very much. I mean, I get it. I, I totally agree with him. Like he tells a story about how there's a kid at a fair or something at a park and he comes out of the porta potty and he says, dad, this porta potty was awesome. It flushes on its own. 
he's like, and we're gonna use that same word, talk about a porta potty, and talk about God. Right. I'm like I know, I, yeah. I agree with you, but it's really hard. <laughs> to, right. It's really hard to not say it. I said it yeah. once. As soon as I said it in this podcast, like, oh, uh, I don't, I don't remember, but who cares? You, you can edit that out, right? Yeah, I'll take it out. I'm sure Doctor Wendy doesn't <laughs> listen. If you do, I'm sorry. All right, fifteen, last one, and this is a long one, and this one's probably unique. I would say probably to. Um, to narrative fiction mm-hmm. writers, because if if the, if I got this piece of writing advice for writing a nonfiction Christian book, I'd be like, well, I guess you don't want me to write a Christian book. Yeah. Uh, number fifteen, don't feel obligated to bring explicitly Christian bits to your writing. Uh, he says, so we must not, of course, write anything that will flatter lust, pride, or ambition, but we needn't all write patently moral or theological work. Indeed, work whose Christianity is latent, may do quite as much good, and may reach some whom the more obvious religious work would scare away. The first business of a story is to be a good story. When our Lord made a wheel in the carpenter shop, uh, depend upon it. It was, first and foremost, a good wheel. Don't try to bring in specifically Christian bits. If God wants you to serve him in that way, he may not. There are different vocations. You will find it coming in of its own accord. If not, well... A good story, which will give innocent pleasure, is a good thing, just like cooking a good nourishing meal. Any honest workmanship, whether making stories, shoes, or rabbit hutches, can be done to the glory of God. Yeah, and I think you're right, Jeff. That's probably more in his wheelhouse in terms of being um, a fiction writer. You know, so he was an essayist. Uh, he was an author of nonfiction works, and he wrote narrative fiction. And so it, it seems to apply more to that. But I think there's also probably lessons for us to traffic more in uh, nonfiction is his line where he says, don't just try to bring in specifically Christian bits. And I think there can be a temptation to approach a subject largely from a secular perspective, but then feel like, oh, I've got to say something about God. And so you kind of tack that on awkwardly at the end or try to awkwardly work that in. And, you know, it's okay to uh, review a product that Amazon without saying all glory to God at the end. (laughs) And just say like, yeah, exactly. Here's a good uh, write up that's clear and informative about this product. And that's okay. Um, You, uh, you're you're not betraying Christ by right. not weaving him in and out of that, but it has to be authentic and uh, not just tacked on to the end as if it's just kind of this awkward sermon ending. Yeah, yeah, that's really helpful. That it does free you up if you're a Christian and you want to be a sports writer. Um, mm-hmm. You you don't have to you know weave in um, verses and drop Philippians four thirteen you know at, at the end of your piece or whatever. Um, right. That you can be a good you know rabbit hutch maker. Mm-hmm. Um, all that stuff that we don't need the we don't need the Christian writing version of testaments or whatever. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, that's one through fifteen, man. We we uh, we knocked them out, and I'm sure we are all now better writers for it. I'm sure there'll be even more amazing Lewis stuff coming out now. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah, man. Well, dude, thanks so much for coming on the show. If if uh, people wanted to keep up with you through social media, uh, where would you tell them to go? Uh, I always have to Google my uh, Twitter handle, but I think it's between two worlds with the number two in the middle, I think. I think you're right. Uh, okay. Uh, so, yeah, that's where I'm on Twitter and then uh, Gospel Coalition blog, between two worlds, and then also um, 
co-host the Evangelical History blog, both at TGC. So if they went to TGC, I think they'd you're all over. Find it. me. Yep. Yeah, you're there. Now, are there any new and exciting books coming out across the way that you want to highlight before we go? Yeah, just this month have been a few uh, fun ones. I was just looking at yesterday, kind of the the fresh stack on my desk of. Uh, um, Humble Beast with Ryan Lister and uh, almost a systematic theology for kids, Emblems of an Infinite King. So if you want to help uh, younger kids uh, get a good theological basis, really cool art, really beautifully designed book. And kind of on the higher end, we've got uh, Robert Lethem's New Systematic Theology. It's yeah, been just many it. years in the making and Greg Beale's got a new um, short studies in biblical theology book where he's going to go in Genesis to Revelation, showing how God ironically reverses things, mm. um, you know, from idolatry, but it also ultimately is culminating in the cross where Satan thinks that he's just had the greatest victory of his life, and actually what he did was his ultimate defeat. Uh, So there's Greg Beale kind of thinking biblically, theologically about that theme of foolishness and wisdom and reversal and judgment and salvation. So there's just a few books that are uh, hot off the press and fun to publish. Yeah, yeah, it's exciting, man. Great stuff. So go check the show notes, guys. You can go see links to all these books and to the article that Justin and I were going over today. And always, you can follow Justin uh, on social media. You can find me there, too. And if you're able, go leave a review in iTunes there in your podcast app. It just helps the show spread to more people. And as always, just keep writing. Keep writing.